200 years we've been beating down too long on the door my dignity i'm losing here mentally i'm on there's a system here that nails us and we're left out in the cold oh they took our life and liberty friends but they could not buy our soul Joe Hill died, Jake Guevara fought, Pamela Wiley down dead. If a person speaks out critically here, they could get down with lead. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. Tracy our breakfast. Oh yeah. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, seven oh, AM until eight thirty AM. Only double. Good morning and welcome to Three C R Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. Census night was Tuesday the 10th of August. Make sure you complete your census. For help, visit census.abs.gov.au or call 1-800-512-441. Authorised by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to community since 1976. That's right, you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am. My name is Shane. I'm here with Fiona. How are you doing, Fiona? I'm good, Shane. How are you? Good. I say you're here with Fiona, but actually, of course, we're in lockdown. So Fiona is in, what, East Gippsland, and I'm in yep. uh, the you know, inner west, in a, in a northwest. I'm not sure anymore. Um, this week, we are bringing you an interview with Jasmine Barzani about Bendigo Street, the touching on the east-west link, the occupation of vacant houses there, the long history of gentrification and resistance, um, I think you're going to find it really interesting. Shall we launch into it, Fiona, or is there anything you want to say? No, let's do that. Let's listen to Jasmine's Let's story. do it. Yeah. So we're joined today by Jasmine Barazani, who is a Kurdish anarchist filmmaker from Melbourne. Um, how are you going today, Jasmine? I'm good, Fiona. Thank you. How are you? I'm really well. Surviving lockdown okay. Um yeah, so we've got you on today because you're making a film, a documentary film about a campaign that happened a couple of years ago, 2016, I believe it was. Um, yeah. To reclaim some empty housing. Um, and we thought it would be good to have you on because HAG wants to support um, raising awareness of the issues of housing supply. And we thought this was an interesting angle that our viewers may not have heard about. So, to start with, would you be able to tell us a little bit about the Bendigo Street campaign, where it is and, and um, what it involved? Sure. So in 2016, in a little street in the inner north of Melbourne, in a pretty infamous suburb called Collingwood, that most people will probably know about, a whole street basically ended up being occupied by a group of, like, lots of types of people, but there was, you know, people who were experiencing homelessness at the time, there was activists, there was squatters, and, you know, all these categories kind of 
into the mesh as well. Lots of people belong to all of those categories at the same time. But there was lots of people involved in it, and it basically went on for eight months, but there was about 15 empty government-owned properties that ended up being occupied as part of this political protest against the waste of empty properties all around Melbourne. At the time, there was about 80,000 empty properties, and there was about 25,000 homeless people. So that is kind of a really obvious, clear injustice and a very wasteful kind of predicament that we find ourselves in, in the current state of affairs, where there is such a need, a chronic need that is like really uh, exponential, you know, increasing over the years for housing across all different types of people, all different, um, you know, walks of life, people who need housing increasingly more and more. And the state of the empty properties has, you know, maintained about 6%. Five to six percent of the overall housing stock. So that was basically what people pro- were protesting at the time in 2016. And it was really great. It was a really incredible thing that happened. A lot of people's lives were changed forever through that protest. And also a lot of people were housed through that protest. You know, people were in need and they came and we were able to work together to get people what they needed at the time. And that was a really beautiful thing. So. So so these houses, they were all on one street and they'd all been acquired by the government to build a freeway and then the freeway didn't happen and then they were just sitting empty. Is that is that how it happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the exact uh, way that it happened. So basically people would know about the East-West Link, but for people who don't know, in 2014 the Liberal government at the time, Dennis Napthine in Victoria, in the state of Victoria, announced that he was going to construct this multi-billion dollar highway project that was going to connect Melbourne's east to Melbourne's west. And this was a project that was in the works for a really long time. Actually, I think in the 90s or something, or maybe even earlier, it was proposed, actually. And it was proposed by Labor at the time. And then, you know, it never really went through and kind of the parties just kind of flipped and flopped on it until finally Dennis Napkin the Liberal Party guy in 2014, he put his foot down and was like, okay, we're going to build this highway. But it was a couple of months before the state election. And so that was really controversial because he was going to put forward this like incredibly expensive highway right before a state election. So people were arguing that he should have waited for the election so that it could be decided upon through the election rather than be decided upon prior to. Anyway, long story short, there was massive community opposition to this highway. People's houses were going to be compulsorily acquired for the highway. So, you know, they got letters in their mailboxes saying, we're going to, we want to purchase your property to build this highway. So, you know, there was massive displacement that happened. Uh, People were pressured through lawyers and legal, you know, resources that the government had at their disposal to threaten and bully people out of their homes. And so a lot of people ended up, unfortunately, forced to sell their houses. And one of the streets that had a lot of these houses was Bendigo Street because that was the site for the construction of an on-ramp onto this new highway. So a lot of houses on Bendigo Street were forcibly bought by the government against the will of the people who are living there. 
And just a few people resisted to the end and didn't sell off their properties. But in 2014, that's what happened. And that community opposition that occurred was successful. So, you know, it forced the Labour government at the time that was running in opposition to the Liberals, it forced them into flipping on their election promise. Their initial election promise was that they would also build the highway. But because of the community protest, they were forced to change their position. So basically, Labour changed their position into, no, if we get elected, we will not construct the highway. And so Labour was elected, and a lot of people perceived that victory to be hugely at the, uh, you know, at the community, because of the community opposition. So, and then, and then, the, and really, then the houses sat empty for a couple of years, and meanwhile, homelessness is increasing. Um, it's, the homelessness yes. is more visible on the streets, and the government owns all of these quite nice inner city houses that there's nothing wrong yes. with them. They've got some of them are really, you know, fancy. And so then the community decided to move in to those properties. Um, And so how how did you get involved in, in, because you were one of the people involved at the time, weren't you? So how did you find out about it? How did you get involved? Um, And how long did people manage to stay there for? Yeah, so it's a cool story. It's really interesting. So basically... I was squatting at the time, so I was like, you know, studying an undergrad at university. This is the thing about housing. Housing deprivation is what I like to call it personally, because it covers a really wide spectrum of how people suffer as because of housing and housing insecurity and instability, you know. Homelessness is a real issue, and it's really important, uh, but a lot of people you know, suffer from housing insecurity and deprivation and insecurity who are not also homeless, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a, there's a lot of experiences like that that go on when housing is so expensive and unaffordable. And so anyway, at the time, I was squatting, not homeless, uh, but studying full-time and kind of just, I guess, trying to get by on um, the, you know, money I was getting from the government for studying and trying to, like, study full-time and kind of, like, uh, like finding my, I guess, security and community through squatting and getting kind of security of housing like that through networks and through, you know, supporting each other and supporting other people who are also squatting at the time. So, anyway, a friend of mine who I was squatting with in Carlton, she heard about these empty houses that were acquired for the East West Link through the squatters' grapevine, you know? People were just like, yeah, like, those houses that were acquired for the East West Link, like, whatever happened to those houses? Like, there must be there must be heaps of empty houses around Melbourne that were acquired for the East West Link. Like, let's, let's suss it out, you know? Let's try to find out where these houses are. So my friend just went online and she did a search, you know, okay, empty properties, East West Link, Melbourne. And, you know, an article by The Guardian clearly comes up, Bendigo Street, Collingwood, you know, heaps of houses, number 16 Bendigo Street, number, you know, um, clearly with the numbers on them, right? So she just 
goes down to Bendigo Street in like early 2016 to check it out. She had just been evicted from one of her houses that she was squatting in at the time by a bulldozer just coming and being like, all right, we're going to demolish the property now. And she was like, all right, I have to scramble and get my stuff out immediately. So she went down to Bendigo Street and she's just like, okay, there's an entire street of empty houses, right? So her and her, uh, her friends, they end up just choosing the house that's the easiest to get into, which was number 16 Bendigo Street at the time. They get into there, and it, it doesn't last even a week, I think. It's like a very short time because a government official comes with, yeah, you know, like fully government official from DHHS. Uh, Jim's mowing contractor was the person who discovered her at the time, and he let out some interesting information too, which was like, oh, yeah, this house is managed by Magpie's Nest or Salvation Army. And so she was like, oh, okay, true. The Jim's mowing contractor calls up the police, the police come down with the government official and they kick them out immediately and don't give them any time to find alternative accommodation options at all. So that was kind of strange, to be honest, because as someone who's been kicked out of many places and like squatting and stuff like this, you know, a lot of the times the owners are pretty mean and they do, you know, kick you out and they say you're not allowed any time and they're really aggro and they're angry. But a lot of the times, in my experience, more often than not, the owners do give you some time. Like they allow you at least a day to pick up your things and pack up and stuff. But this government official did not allow any time, like stood over them while they were packing up their things. So that was a bit of a, you know, quite intense, aggressive, violent action that enraged people and made people in the squatting community activist community, homeless community, upset. So my friend kind of just told everyone about that, actually got onto 3CR and had a conversation with Kelly and Spike from Ruminations and from the Homeless Persons Union. And then after that chat, they just kind of thought, all right, like what about what, what happens if we did something? What happens if we responded and we kind of, you know, drew, drew attention to this issue of, you know, there's, at the moment, like 300 plus, you know, houses that are literally empty because of the East West Link that are perfectly livable because they've just forced people out of their homes that they were living in. So they're ready to go and they're just being left empty. It's already two years since the East West Link has happened. So that's kind of messed up, you know, because at the time they had done a street count and, you know, I think the city of Melbourne does like a yearly street count or like every couple of years or something, they go into the city and they try to see how many people are sleeping on the streets in the winter night in Melbourne and they try to, I don't know, use that as some kind of statistical measure of homelessness. So anyway, they did that that year, I think, and there was 300 or something people in the city, about, or 200 something, I don't remember the exact number, but it was there was enough empty East Westland properties to house everybody that was sleeping in the city at that time. And all of these houses were inner city houses. So that was pretty outrageous. And then at the same time, there was this murky issue of the magpie's nest management of these properties. And then did a little bit of digging and a little bit of investigation and found out that actually the Greens did recommend that the East West Link houses be put onto the public housing uh, stock so that people could actually use those houses. So the Greens did suggest that, and through some back and forth and battling, 
the government at the time, which was the newly elected Labour government, which is currently still the same government that we have here in Victoria. So they ended up giving 20 houses out of the 300 plus houses that were acquired for the East West Link. They ended up giving 20 to a joint venture between the Collingwood Football Club and the Salvation Army called Magpie's Nest. So Magpie's Nest was given 20 properties, but we knew that through the Jim's loan contractor that this property was still kept empty, even though it was given to Magpie's Nest. So there was a lot of different layers of, I guess, corruption and real injustice that was happening at the time. Lots of different layers that we knew about through our direct involvement in the situation and that we knew that it was really like outrageous and wrong what was happening and that that needed to be challenged and that needed to be contested. So that's why people decided to occupy 16 Bendigo Street. It was Easter Day 2015 and that's what kicked it off. That's what started the whole thing. That's how I got involved. And so now you're making a film, a documentary film about everything that happened on Bendigo Street and the leading up to it and what happened afterwards as well. Um, so what, what are you hoping to show through the film? What's the, what's the important message that you want to get out um, by making this documentary? The main message that we want to get out to people is basically just to encourage people to think more critically about things because you know, from an outside perspective, like if you didn't have insider knowledge or insider information or you didn't investigate further about the situation, you would think that everything was just fine and you would think that, oh, if you're homeless, you can get housing because there's public housing, you know? There's public housing. Duh, homeless people, why don't you just get into the public housing, right? But that's not, we all know that that's not really the case. Right, like there are massive waiting lists for public housing, even when houses are giving, you know, there's like this massive like private, um, privatization of public housing going on at the moment. So from an outside perspective, you think, oh, social housing, oh, you know, Salvation Army, yeah, they, they have houses, even if there's not public housing, why don't you go get some social housing or something like this? Like, actually, that's not that available either, you know, and it's, not that simple and there's also a lot of corruption that goes on as well and um, things that go on that aren't necessarily what we want to stand for as people who are paying our taxpayer money for this kind of thing but that's basically the main message the main message is to think deeper and think more critically and to investigate yourself about these issues before making judgments and before thinking that everything is okay as someone who has not had a lived experience potentially of housing insecurity and housing deprivation mm. and homelessness. Um, and, you know, it started off as being about the 2016 Bendigo Street occupations, but it slowly, it slowly grew more and more as we kept writing and kept researching for the making of the film to be a lot broader and bigger. And that's been really cool. But it's basically, you know, taking a street like Bendigo Street in Collingwood, which is a seemingly average, mundane, normal street, just like any other street in Melbourne, and kind of digging into the 
the cement and just being like, what's underneath all of this? How did we get here? You know? And then as you start to do that, you start to uncover a lot of really, really unbelievable history and really like crazy stuff. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just the 2016, uh, Bendigo Street occupation, right? You go a little bit further in time, then you uncover the East West Wing. Then you go a little bit further in time and you uncover actually in the 1970s, there was a proposal for a gazillion different highways like the F-12, the F-19, F-19, the F-12, F, a couple of other things. And there was like all these highways that were going to be constructed around um, Melbourne and they were protested as well. And so um, I think it was the F-12 or the F-2, F-2, I'm not sure, but it was the highway that, that one ended up being scrapped, that didn't go ahead. But unfortunately the F-19 did go ahead and that cut off the head of Bendigo Street back then. So that's how we have Alexander Parade today. And so that's been really awful, right, because of all the traffic that that has created and all of the calls for building public transport that have been ignored since those days until now has produced the result that we see today, which is just massive congestion, pollution, and calls for more highways to be built when obviously that's not going to fix the problem because that's just going to lead to more congestion right so, so then you go I will say yeah yeah I was so, just gonna say I think it's really interesting because I think of roads protest as something that happened a lot in the UA but I didn't really know there was much history of that happening here yeah there's heaps of it totally and not a lot of people know about it and I didn't know about it either until I actually talked to someone on the street on Bendigo Street at the time whose uncle uh, one of the longtime residents of Bendigo Street who did resist the the forcible acquisitions in 2014, I was just chatting to him and he was like, yeah, my uncle was involved in these protests in the 1970s up on Alexander Parade. And I was like, what protests were they? And he was like, oh, they were going to, you know, build the Alexander Highway and everyone didn't want it there. And so people were like blockading and the mayor got arrested. (laughs) And there's all these like really cool old photos and newspaper articles about that. So that's going to be part of the film. And then... So much other things, you know, like the slum clearances from the 1930s onwards where, you know, Collingwood and Fitzroy were presented by the media and the government as these, like, really, really, I don't know, degenerate, like, awful, evil places just just because the houses were a bit run down or something like this. And they used that to justify these massive interventions and demolitions of people's homes back from, from the 1930s onwards, you know, and these were all very poor working class people. And that's just a reoccurring theme, you know, that's, that's gone on since then of just basically poor people being used as a, as a kind of tool for the government to construct their own narratives and then to justify whatever interventions they want to take. And we've seen that as most recently as the public housing lockdowns that happened during COVID, right? So these these public housing towers are totally uh, ignored by the government as as uh, places that desperately need uh, renovations, desperately need resources, desperately need uh, you know some financial development so that the places can be COVID safe. They need you know resources 
but they get ignored up until the point where something like a COVID-19, you know, uh, kind of happens there. And then all of a sudden it's their fault. You know, they're the people that have put everyone in danger and they're the people that need to be punished and imprisoned in their own homes for like two weeks straight, you know? Yeah. So it sounds so like there's a lot of... Sounds- Go on. Go <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like there's a lot of issues to be covered in the doco, um, and it's a really interesting thing, I think, about, I guess the other theme is gentrification and, and you know, poorer people being pushed out of the inner city. Collingwood is the inner city these days, so that's a whole other story as well. Is there a place that people can find out more about, about the documentary and, and when you're hoping to have it done? Do you have a website or something that people can have a look at? Yeah, so the website is going to be online in one month. So we don't have it online yet, but if people are interested in keeping updated with our progress, then I would encourage them to just send an email to Bendigo Street Documentary. So that's Bendigo, B-E-N-D-I-G-O-S-T, documentary at gmail.com. It's kind of really early days at at the moment, so we don't have a website, an official website up yet, but we did kind of release a little trailer and just like a short write-up for an online newsletter that the Institute of Postcolonial Studies was running at the time. If if people want to see a trailer, they can go to the Institute of Postcolonial Studies website and just search for Bendigo Street and they'll be able to see a trailer and a little write-up there. But in the meantime, just send us an email and we'll keep you updated with when the website's going to be launched and then when the screenings and fundraisers and stuff like this will be happening. That's about all we've got time for, Jasmine, but it will be great to have you back on when you're ready to launch the film um, and really looking forward to seeing and hearing about some of those stories of the people that were living at Bendigo Street, which included some older people as well. So it'll be great to hear from all of those people too. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. Okay, that was such a good interview. I really liked what Jasmine had to say about the idea of housing deprivation as a way of thinking about housing issues. Um, uh, I like the way that puts the emphasis on, like, it's not a passive situation. Like, you're not, it's not just that you're homeless, you're actively being deprived, and that is to say that someone or some system is doing the depriving. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yep. it really okay. emphasises that these are choices that the, the system is making. And it also takes it away, I guess, from people perceiving that it's an individual choice as well. Um, I also like the idea of documenting resistance over time. I think we have a tendency to forget how much people have tried to stop some of these really obvious social ills in the past. So it's great to hear that there's a documentary coming out about some of those things. That's right. Like I said, we are almost out of time, so we're just going to hit you up with some contact details. If you'd like to get in touch with HAG, um, either to talk about what direct action we might do together uh, or to get involved in some of our other campaign and policy work, um, or because you're an older person in Victoria who has a housing issue that you would like to talk to someone about, give us a call. number is 1300 765 178. That number again is 1300 765 178. Um, you can check out our website, which is oldertenants.org.au, uh, or you can find HAG on Twitter or on Facebook if you use those social media platforms. I think that's just about it. Fiona, what song are you going to leave them with today? 
Today we're going to hear a song from local artist Alice Skye, and it's called Melbourne. Ooh. Okay, we'll go into Sounds that. Sounds great. See you next time. All right. See ya. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Radio. You're joined by Jacob. And Fung. And that was Alice Skye singing a song called Melbourne. Before that, Fiona and Shane spoke to Jasmine, a Kurdish filmmaker who is making a documentary about the Bendigo Street campaign, where a group of people moved into houses left empty after they were compulsorily acquired for a freeway project that didn't go ahead. The conversation included discussion on the long history of activism in the inner city suburb of Collingwood and how housing deprivation impacts on the community. Regular listeners would remember the extensive 3CR coverage from the community pickets at the time. Stay tuned for updates on the documentary. And you can catch Shane and Fiona from HAG on Raise the Roof, 5.30 to 6pm on the second and fourth Wednesdays of the month here on 3CR. And check them out on the website at www.3cr.org.au forward slash H-A-A-G. Up next, we have Alex Bainbridge, National Co-Convener of Socialist Alliance and longtime climate activist. Uh, they joined Felix and Jacob from Green Left Radio to chat about the political implications of the new IPCC report, which, be, which is being touted as a code red for humanity and why it raises the case for radical social change driven by mass movements. This is Felix speaking from 3CR here. I'm in the studio with Jacob. How are you doing? I'm good. Obviously, we got you on because the new IPCC report has been released and uh, it's a bit of a bombshell. Uh, what are your thoughts about it? Look, I've got a number of thoughts about it. I mean, it's unsurprising, the, the, the main conclusions, because it's based on the science which has been available for some time. But it is 
certainly very sobering and compelling to put it all together in one cohesive package that just shows very clearly that climate change not only is real, not only is caused by humans, and this is uh, you know, clearly being said unambiguously uh, in, a, in a way that hasn't been, hasn't been said by the IPCC before. Uh, so all those things are, are dramatic and compelling. In addition, there is the, uh, the question of that the IPCC says it is still possible for us to actually turn around. There is a window of opportunity for us to reduce our emissions and potentially stabilise the climate uh, in a way that is not going to be catastrophic for, for our society. And then the third point I would make, I would make is just the, the sort of dismal response by not only the Morrison government, but even the ALP. So I guess we can go through those in turn, but those, those, are, those are a summary of my thoughts on it. Yeah, what, what do you think, um, like obviously we, we, we are obviously all aware climate change is accelerating, it's a massive problem, it's like we're looking at apocalyptic scenarios the destruction of huge amounts of our ecosystem and um, and communities. Um, and so, like, definitely it's not a surprise in that sense. I was mainly surprised by it, probably in your second point, with the language that they used about just how dire the situation is. What do you think about the mainstream media representation of this report? Like, I have noticed in a few areas, like in The Guardian, there was a, a major headline, irreversible, like these words here that sort of, I feel like they're transitioning, like this, this is just the impression that I got from reading a couple of these headlines, but transitioning from the um, the idea that this is something that we can deal with, maybe down the track to suddenly, oh, it's too late, it's uh, it's inevitable, it's irreversible, we're all, we're all screwed, so this is it. Do you think that there is a sort of defeatist attitude that's greeted this report? Uh, I think that the first thing in answering that question, everybody's got to be aware we are at a knife edge. Um, you know, the, the time for action really was, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, and we squandered that time as a as a you know, global society um, because of, you know, the, the capitalist rulers of that society. But nevertheless, as a society, we've squandered the time that we had, which means that all of our options from here on in are dangerous. There is nothing which is sort of safe and easy. Um, but as, as I read, and I'm not, obviously not a scientist myself, but I, I pay as close attention as I can to what scientists are saying, and... I don't think it is simply blind deciding. Uh, I think it is. I think it is. You know, the best science is saying to us that there is still time to actually turn things around. So things are not. Uh, it's not irreversible yet. It's not. Uh, it's not you know, an absolute catastrophe, as in hot house, hot house earth scenario yet. It will be probably quite soon. Yeah. And 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 you know, from from that point of view, it means that um, you know, yes, I mean, the, you know. The main, in the mainstream, there has been a transition towards, you know, towards a sort of a sense of, oh, it's all doom and gloom. It is, there is too late. There's nothing we can do. That is, that is a big problem. And I think it, I think it's those people that say the doomism is the, is the latest version of denialism. That is correct. And so I think that there is a job for progressives to actually cut through that sort of doomsday scenario. Um, certainly I think the people that say, oh, it's all over. It's all terrible. I think those people, are mistaken according to the best science from today, but you've got to say that within, within a context of we are at a nice edge. It is serious and it is very urgent. Do you feel like there's a, going to be any sort of difference with this report as there have been with the previous reports? And also, like, we're, we're getting more and more inundated with news stories from around the world and, like, particularly in Australia of devastating climate impacts. You know, obviously, there's the massive heat wave in North America. 
the the devastating flooding in Germany and other parts of Europe like Belgium and in China and then flooding in India as well and um, just freakish weather all over the planet, not to mention the bushfires in Australia that we had at the start of 2020. Do you think that there's any prospect of sort of a like a, a, a wake-up? Like I feel that the people, the communities, even a lot of working-class people that are, you know, said to be dismissive of these issues, um, that they've, they, they are aware of what's going on and they're, they're, they have their eyes open about the, um, the dangers. But do you think that from a, um, like a, like not necessarily government, but a, a sort of the, um, the zeitgeist of the, of the ruling class in some ways, maybe News Limited, that there, there is a switch going on, uh, either because of this, IPCC report or due to the, the frequency of weather events? Look, I, I think that I think the reality of climate change, which, as I said, is not some hypothetical future scenario. It is a reality happening right now. It is staring us in the face. You look at the last month's extreme weather in the northern summer, as you just referred to, uh, it is impossible for, to, to, to deny those things or to ignore those things. So, of course, there is going to be... There has been a change in the, in the narrative from the media and the, the ruling class more generally... Um, and, and that will continue, I think. But I also think we need to look at some plain facts. Like, to just take one recent example, and this is based on United States media, but some analysis basically showed that the, the 10 minutes in space by Jeff Bezos received as much coverage in one day yeah, as the that. entire climate issue received all the <laughs> last year. You know, that's like, so that's just like, that just gives you a little sort of sense about what we're up against. I think the other thing to remember, only two years ago, 2019, the International Monetary Fund released a report which said all around the world, the governments of the world are, you know, still, I mean, as of, you know, two years ago, but I don't think, I haven't seen any sort of substantial change. The governments of the world are spending literally trillions. It's sort of between four and six trillion dollars, trillion with a T, in subsidies for fossil fuel. Now, you've got to be, um, you've got to understand that report in its, in its context, because what that report was including was every country that doesn't charge a carbon tax, they were basically counting that as a subsidy. So, mm-hmm. you know, like, it's, you know, I mean, like, in that sense, it's not trillions of, of little cash handed out to the corporations, but it's still a substantial amount of money in Australia as well, billions, you know, over 10 billion, literally handed out free money to the fossil fuel corporations. And it's not like Australia, I mean, Australia is, you know, one of the worst, if not the worst, in terms of climate policy, but it's not like Australia is some unique situation where we're the only country in the world which is subsidising the fossil fuel companies. This is part of mainstream capitalism all around the world. Um, and, you know, so, so those are the sobering realities and the sobering facts. And I think, like, in a sense, like, that's what... Yes, of course, the narrative is going to change. It's going to be... You know, climate change is less deniable, um, and, and and all governments are, are forced to respond to it. But, like, you look at, say, Joe Biden. I mean, like, compared to Scott Morrison, he looks brilliant. But, um, you know, one of the Biden policies just recently was like, they're going to make sure that uh, it's not even a binding target. It's just going to be like an aspiration that half of cars sold in the United States by 2030 are going to be not with an internal combustion engine. I mean, in my opinion, that is just not an adequate policy for the scale of the emergency that we're facing. And really, even... Even Europe, you know, even the countries around the world that are that are doing, you know, on the face of it, better than Australia, there still is a denialism 
not in the sense of taking a formal position of denying science, but a different version of denialism where they're not putting forward the policies that are required. And that is because, in my opinion, it's because fossil fuels are baked into the you know, the fabric of, of a capitalist economy. So if we actually want to solve this problem, you can't look to changing narratives or changing policies of the ruling class. There needs to be a rebellion from the rank and file, from the ordinary people. There needs to be a people power revolt against those in power. Otherwise, there will certainly be changing narratives, but there won't be changing policies that's setting up fast enough to actually avert us from the crisis. Yeah, I was reading an, an article the other day that uh, described Australia as a government that is, it, it could reasonably be um, described as, as state capture by the fossil fuel industries. Like, it's there's a revolving door between the, um, not just uh, government representatives, but also public servants that go in and out of fossil fuel boards and um, consultancies and back again. And so there's there's absolutely no reason why anybody from the ruling class would be interested in, in actually solving the problem or what they get involved in is greenwashing where they they make the noises that sound like they're doing something to placate the, the electoral base and then they move on to something else and I think the pandemic has been very useful for this because it's a it is another sort of apocalyptical um, situation that's easy to distract from this sort of slow burn that's happening in the background of climate change um, yeah so, becoming increasingly a fast burn yeah that's right um, do you think that uh, there, there's a, a lot of good scope for activism and for the basically the working class, the people on the ground, uh, communities that are obviously going to bear the brunt of all the effects and that already are. Do you think that people are a bit able to link up in a way that um, that that actually does um, wrest power away from the intransigent um, leadership? I certainly think that is possible, and in fact, I think that is our only hope. And I think the people that dismiss the possibility, like it's very easy to look around, okay, the last, you know, um, uh, you know, you look over recent decades and the level of activism in Australia hasn't exactly been high. We've had obviously a lot of high points, but, you know, but if, but if you just looked at history, um, you would you would be able to find enough, enough evidence to be demoralised if you wanted to. But I guess if you look at the other parts of history, you can also see the evidence that it is possible for people to rise up, oftentimes very quickly, oftentimes uh, without a lot of warning. And, and I guess I, I, I stick by what gives me hope is the idea that what we need to be is as, as radical as reality. And this is a long-time slogan of the left, and I think it's basically very pertinent for the, for the period that we're in. We need, to put, we need to put forward the policies and the demands that are radical enough to meet the the serious reality of the, of the global heating problem you know, catastrophe that we're facing um, and also have the confidence that, that people will respond precisely because it is in accordance with that reality. That gets into the last question we wanted to end on is the implication of this report and following on from the last point that we have to be as radical as reality, we need to fight for a transformation of a, a moving away from capitalism for an eco-socialist transformation of, of society. And I guess what are the type of measures and solutions we need to be fighting for in the immediate term? Look, when, I, when you're asking that question, I guess something that immediately springs to mind. I mean, I've been now a socialist activist for a bit over 30 years. And I remember 30 years ago, people, environmentalists 
would make the argument, oh, we don't have enough time to fundamentally change the economic system. The climate, the, the, the environmental crisis and the climate crisis is too serious. We just don't have time. We just need to work for measures today that are going to make improvement. And, of course, in one sense, that's true. You can't wait for a revolution and just think everything, everything's going to be solved after that. We need to fight as hard as possible right now today for every single uh, step forward, no matter how small, stop at Arnie Mine, you know, um, whatever specific uh, um, uh, measures will make an improvement, we need to fight as hard as we can for those today. But at the same time, alongside those, those fights and those campaigns, we need to organise for a fundamental transformation of society and the economy. And I, I think this is just borne out by experience. It's like it, it, if, you, if you look honestly at, you know, the, the last several decades, we cannot afford to keep on going with the, um, you know, with the sort of business as usual. And I think you look at the commentary of people like Naomi Klein uh, and, you know, in, in her argumentation for a Green New Deal, quite a radical version of a Green New Deal, She's made arguments along the lines of, and in fact also her argument that, you know, that, that capitalism is the problem, um, that we need to actually link environmental, you know, climate action with things like uh, job security, housing security, in general, um, you know, welfare for the, for, the, for the population. And those things need to go hand in glove. And those things, we need, I mean, just taking climate action seriously is in itself a, the implications of that are, are a challenge to the capitalist system. But certainly when you link it with those social welfare measures, which I think are also critical, that is unambiguously a challenge to the, to the capitalist system. And we need to have, we need to recognise the implications of that. And alongside our day-to-day campaigning, like for example, Stop Adani, we also need to be advocating for and organising for, that's the key word, organising for, uh, you know, a, a radical system change in society. And, you know, lots of climate strikers will carry the sign, you know, system change, not climate change. Um, that's, that's a great slogan. That is what we need to do. And we need to not just hold the signs, we need to organise for it. And what that means, in my view, is getting involved in those organisations, like social science is one example, uh, that actually are organising for a fundamental change in, 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 in society. And I think that this isn't uh, I mean, I think you can always advocate. There's always that has always been desirable from the from the point of view of what would be good for society. But right now, I think it's absolutely essential. Like, if we don't do that, um, we're not going to solve the problems that we that we're seeing that the IPCC report has has underlined. Yeah, and just to emphasise that point, actually, I think that's that's a really good uh, point that you made there. But um, it is one of the one of the main tactics of uh, the ruling class is to um, that they just the technocratic solutions to climate change, which you were speaking of earlier about um, switching over to electric cars and things, um, like in that they are problematic in themselves and they don't rise to meet the challenge of climate change. But also they're just easily played by the ruling class, where they can wedge the community in terms of saying that it'll destroy jobs and you know ruin livelihoods and. It's, uh, it's new and scary and it will be controlled by some pointy-headed elite in the cities that don't understand your way of life. And so that's why I think that it's so important for the uh, climate change movement to embrace the people who will be affected at all levels, from the, of starting from the workers, the workers who are, you know, they need to survive. They live in communities that have been based around fossil fuel, fuel industries you know, obviously they need jobs and they need meaningful jobs as well, not just like being retrained in 
you know, software engineering or something. So I think that by taking the whole of society approach and to transform the economy as well as our fossil fuel industries all at once is the only practical way to do it. It'll because we just face defeat at every turn otherwise. Do you have any other final thoughts about this, Alex? Look, I just think that people need to uh, remember the the point that it is actually we still have time to change it and that you know we need to sort of put our efforts towards that. The thing that the, the big fossil fuel corporations want nothing more than for people to feel demoralised and like there's nothing they can do. And the reality is it's evidence-based. There is plenty we can do to, to change things and so we need, need to give it our best shot. Thank you very much, Alex, for having this discussion with us. Thanks for hosting the show. Appreciate it, Alex. Alex Bainbridge, National Co-Convener of Socialist Alliance, and we were just having a bit of a discussion with him about the implications of the recent IPCC report. The Um, International Panel on Climate Change. Thanks to Felix and Jacob from Green Left Radio bringing us that interview with Alex Bainbridge there, um, ending on the point that we do need... uh, to transform our whole of society uh, and starting with those who are going to be most affected by climate change. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR Good morning. You're on 3CR. Um, this is Jacob. And Fung. Um, and it's a pleasure to have you join us this morning. Um, so that was a community announcement to get vaccinated. Um, and up next, we're going to be talking a little bit about the situation in Afghanistan. So I'm sure a lot of us watched on in horror um, at the scenes of Kabul Airport as the people of Afghanistan tried to flee the country, given the takeover of the Taliban. Here to shed some light on the situation, we've got a pre-recorded interview with Fahwande Akbare, who is a scholar at ANU and spoke to Giselle Hanna and Pierre Morrow on Asia-Pacific Currents. From the devil's own world Georgia's is hanging Under your pride I hold on to me now I'm on your side
That was I'm On Your Side uh, by Archie Roach. Apologies for the little tech slip-up. Now we're going to bring you a segment from Asia Pacific Currents um, with scholar from the ANU, Fahwande Akbare. University and currently undertaking a PhD researching the prospect of peace with the Taliban in comparison to the Khmer Rouge. In 2012, she worked at the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission, monitoring and investigating violations of international humanitarian law by parties to the armed conflict in Afghanistan. Welcome to the program, Farhonde. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, a pleasure to have you, Farhonde. Um, so um, just as a, as a question for our listeners, we'll, we'll get to um, what the Taliban uh, version 2 uh, are all about um, now, because obviously if people can remember, they did um, gain power around 25 years ago as well. Um, the first question is to many people, many people who are not really attuned to what's happened in Afghanistan would have been really surprised about the collapse over the last month or even the last three weeks, the, the speed of it. But my feeling is that this is very much um, due to the, the corruption, the inequality, 
the electoral frauds that have happened over 20 years of these Afghan governments and um, they had lots they didn't have much real support around the country would that be reasonable thing to say um, I would yes I would start with just uh, quoting the Asia Foundation that um, uh, in 2019 just before COVID that they were able to conduct their survey 85.1 percent of the Afghan population uh, indicated that they have absolutely no sympathy for the Taliban that shows to us that uh, the Taliban lacks that that grassroots support that they claim but the fact that the the elements that you mentioned does play have played uh, a role in in, in in the Taliban's victory and that is corruption that is fighting the wrong strategy and all of this too comes back to our international um, partners especially the US and also the Afghan government and and it is it is a combination of or a combination of failures on on from the US side and from the Afghan government that led to the Taliban victory because the Afghan people however tired of war they are they have seen the Taliban before they have experienced the Taliban before so Taliban did lack lack that genuine public support um, but at the same time it's not that the Taliban are so strong and and and, and supported but it is it is the failure on this side led them to that to a failure and 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 eventual collapse of, of Afghanistan in the hands of the Taliban. So why why do you think I mean obviously it's been 20 years that these uh, successive uh, governments in Afghanistan were in in power why do you think such a level of corruption and um, so little um, nation building was able to go on and uh, I mean I heard reports that um, in the end the military even ran out of bullets Absolutely I mean Having looking back at the 20 years of the intervention in Afghanistan, um, we saw that um, at the beginning with the Taliban leaving Kabul, they left Kabul without a bullet being fired, but then they took back Kabul without a bullet being fired. So, but at that time, they in in, in Bonn conference 2000 and December 2001, the U.S. and the other Afghan parties they they put uh, they installed the wrong the wrong form of government for Afghanistan. Afghanistan is a diverse ethnically diverse, very tribal um, uh, uh, society. They put a very centralized presidential system that the, our president had the power of a king, and he was the one um, assigning people from top to bottom. And for a, gov- for a, for a country at war and for, for one man to manage the entire country, it became very difficult. And also knowing that we are diverse politically, culturally, linguistically. And, and first, it was this very centralized system. Secondly, it was, that, that was part of the deal in, in Bonn conference. And secondly, the corruption. Um, and that started mainly with, uh, with the elections. 2004, the world witnessed how Afghan poured themselves and their heart to the to the bull, uh, to the to the ballot papers, and, and and just to be able to have that opportunity to to nominate uh, who they want them to represent. Because mind you, I mean, we are we have seen 
other episodes of war. We had seen the Soviet invasion. We had seen the the civil war, the Taliban takeover. So 2014, after the transitional government that was set, people really looked forward for that. But that was the only successive election that corruption was low. And then the 2009 presidential election that fraud was immense. And, and, and it, it goes back to that, to that strategy of war. It goes back to the system, the government system that, um, that led to that, um, build up um, their route to corruption, and then the 2014 election, and then the 2019 election, which was um, an institutionalized um, uh, fraud. Coming back to the latest one, I was an independent observer for the for the presidential election going to different provinces. I observed less than one million Afghans made it to the to the um, uh, to the to the um, uh, elections and centers that day to cast their vote. Why? Because they did not believe in it. Because their votes were sold in these previous elections, be it parliamentary or presidential, and it was always that whoever America selects, they would become a president. And then the precedent was that in 2014, when there was a, a reports of fraud, Afghan people did come to the streets, did raise their voice that. There are frauds that need to be investigated. But then the U.S. Secretary of the State, John Kerry, came to Kabul and then made the deal between the two running, the running um, uh, candidates, uh, Dr. Abdullah and Dr. Ashokhani, to join a, a, a unity government. So our tale of misery uh, that we are going through today began um, uh, from before, but mainly from that day when people really lost hope in democracy, in their voice being heard, because U.S. interfered, U.S. and our international partners did not principally take sides to do uh, something about this fraud and also side with the people, not not with the leaders, because the leaders, I mean, the international community were after quick fixes. And then the result is what we are seeing today and the collapse of the entire country, Kabul within hours, the entire country within days. Um, thanks for that. Uh, you've, you've given really a, a very um, good summary of, of how over these years the, the whole government uh, structure really was hollowed out of any legitimacy. Um, and so getting to today's or, or these event, events of the last um, week, uh, obviously the Taliban took uh, control 25 years ago, I think 1996, if my memory is correct, the first time. Correct. Um, they were, as a movement, they were much younger. They were literally straight out of the madrasas from uh, Pakistan and they, and they took over the country really quickly. Now it's like 25 years later, a lot of the um, uh, same leaders are there, but they're much older. A lot of them have lived uh, uh, overseas. Uh, I mean, I remember... Um, when they were in power in the late 90s, I mean, they even destroyed uh, tape recorders and cassettes and, and radios, but now they seem to be totally engaged with social media. So how would you, would you see any difference between the Taliban 1996 version and the Taliban um, 2021 versions? Um, look, we we have been living in in with the Taliban. Uh, my family lived in the in the first version, and my relative and close uh, friends are living in the second version now. 
but we it, it is true there has been an argument about that the Taliban have changed and that narrative came when the US started to abandon the Afghan government and the Afghan people and negotiated um um, an exit agreement, but they called it a peace agreement with the Taliban in 2018. For the U.S. to directly and diplomatically engage with the Taliban, they had to put out this narrative that the Taliban has changed. But from an Afghanistan perspective, from our people, from the people's perspective, the Taliban have changed, yes, but they have gone more brutal. They have gone more advanced in their in their in their atrocity that they have been committing. I mean, look at Afghanistan. It's 20 years. It is still continued to be on the top list as the most unstable place in the world. Um, the conflict was 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 rampant, and the level of violence was huge. But the Taliban used different tactics. It, it evolved in as an insurgency, using different tactics, different means of uh, another evolution for them was how to use communication technology to promote their ideas and ideology to this to their to their own fighters as well as to communicate to the world but uh, this is part of the Taliban propaganda we have not seen any substance from the Taliban to be hopeful that the Taliban have changed for better the Taliban can govern. The Taliban really struggled to govern Afghanistan in the, in, when the first took power in 1995, 1996, and they're still struggling today to, uh, to, to do governance. Um, but they have sort of um, been very successful in managing their communication and their propaganda in a way to rebrand themselves in terms of communicating using this caveat that exists in the world and also the weaknesses that are there and also the, the, the lack of appetite from the international community. Everyone wants to get out of Afghanistan, so it's, it's a good time for Taliban to polish their portrait, uh, uh, to, to bring that doubt at least that they have changed. But in reality, uh, uh, suicide bombing occurs, the Taliban are as harsh as they are, as they have been. Um, Ideologically, for the Taliban, um, they remain core to what they were, and, and, and the reason, even the leadership might need to see the need to change that, but they cannot because as an, an extremely ideological organization, the cohesiveness of the Taliban as an insurgency have been able to, um, uh, uh, to control uh, their rank and file. And that comes with ideology more than anything else. Um, it, it, it's, it's, not, um, it's not the threats of survival. People can always switch sides. And this is very prominent in Afghanistan, especially during the wars, for people to t- switch sides. Yeah, but it is the ideology. Yeah, right. and, and that ideology was one of the reasons that the Taliban never was not able to compromise in the peace negotiation and also agree to a ceasefire. We've just got a, a couple of minutes, and I just want to ask one last quick question. Um, when they did take over um, 25 years ago, uh, Afghanistan was much less urbanised, uh, much more rural. This time, it's much more urban. There's many more people living in, in the big cities. A lot of the population is much more internationally connected. How do you think they'll be able to govern these new populations? I think that is the biggest struggle. Um, Afghanistan, 30 per, uh, 75% of the population is under 30 
uh, years of age. So that means a lot of the people have been born and raised in the post-2001 era, exposed to the world, connected to the world, and also this revolution of um, technology plays a big role here. So that's why uh, there will really be a struggle. The Taliban cannot hide their atrocities anymore. As we are seeing in the last few days that they took over, there are videos being leaked, but there are restrictions. People are fearful of their lives. And, and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the Afghan youth, I mean, as hopeless as they are today, that the world left them and their leaders, their uh, national leaders also abandoned them as our president just uh, flew off from the country. They think that uh, they cannot live in the, the version that we are seeing, the Taliban that they are. Um, they're not able to evolve, but it's the Taliban that have to evolve and melt down to the, in, into the realities of the society. Uh, there is a large uh, educated population um, uh, in Afghanistan uh, by opening of the schools and uh, internet, students going to universities, returning back to Afghanistan. Yes, the Taliban would really struggle, and this is what we have to witness in the days to come, how the Taliban would form a government to be able to uh, uh, satisfy um, a different constituency and also have a say. But, but we are not very ho hopeful. We think we have just uh, entered another cycle of war. Thank you to Giselle Hanna and Pierre Moreau from Asia Pacific Currents for that report on the Taliban and what it means for Afghanistan in 2020-21. Um, if you want to check out more of Asia Pacific Currents, you can tune in every Saturday on 3CR from 9am to 9.30, and you can also check out their website at www.3cr.org.au forward slash Asia PAC for Pacific um, and we've been having a bit of a discussion in the studio today about ways you can support uh, people in Afghanistan. Um, and a couple of, of different uh, companies and charities come to mind. So um, one of those organizations is Rukshana Media. Um, so this is a media organization that reports exclusively on issues that affect Afghan women from the taboo of menstruation, child marriage, street harassment, and economic hardship. Um, and you can support them by visiting the chuffed.org page, um, which we will link in our Monday Brekkie uh, uh, page after the show. Um, another cause you can support is Marboba's Promise, which is an emergency response team, and they are providing emergency shelter, cooking, and hygiene essentials to help families um, by providing food and other necessities. So both two very worthy causes, and we'll be putting some links in our Monday Brekkie page. So visit 3cr.org forward slash Monday Breakfast. Um, and if you can, it'd be great to, to support some of the great causes um, to help the people of Afghanistan. So the time is 10 past 8. You're on 3CR Monday Brekkie. Um, and now we're going to go to a song. So this song is called Mysterious... Um, and it's by a local artist called Remy Andre.
So that song was Mysterious by Remy Andre, and if you liked that, you can check him out at Remy. So the last name is Andre, O-N-D-R-E-Y. Um, and I may be a little biased because um, I definitely I know him, but I think it's an absolute banger. Step aside, Kylie Minogue. Up next, we've got Senator Lydia Thorpe, who is a Jabarang Gunai and Gunditjmara woman and the Green Senator for Victoria. In 2017, she became the first Aboriginal woman in Victorian Parliament. In 2020, she became the first Indigenous person to represent Victoria in Federal Parliament. She joined Priya to talk about treaty in light of incarceration rates and climate change and to discuss the truth-telling and treaty circle which took place last week. And you're on 3CR 855 AM. And we are about to be uh, speaking with Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's a Jabwarang, Gunai and Gunachamara woman and Green Senator for Victoria. And in 2017, Lydia became the first Aboriginal woman in Victorian Parliament and in 2020 became the first Indigenous person to represent Victoria in federal parliament. So uh, good morning, Lydia. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning. Always a pleasure to uh, support and join 3CR. Yeah, we um, love that you love 3CR and are very appreciative of your work. So um, maybe we can jump straight into it. I think there's obviously a lot going on right now. And I think one of the key themes of our conversation today is going to be treaty and the need for treaties between the government and First Nations people. Um, so I thought we might start off by talking about the current closing the gap targets and uh, imprisonment rates in Victoria and some of the sort of issues around, you know, these skyrocketing prison uh, imprisonment rates and the relationship between a treaty and how, you know, that would be addressed. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, well, we've seen... Uh time and time again that no government has been able to close the gap uh, and in particular this government that we're dealing with right now, they've gone backwards. 
uh, yes, they can, you know, put some little small ticks uh, on some uh, areas of importance, but the ones that are killing us, uh, they're going backwards. And that's the rates of suicide, that's the rates of incarceration, that's the rates of child removal. Uh, they've all increased and they're going backwards. So it basically, um, going by the government timeline on closing the gap targets, they would not be achieved, uh, or parity would be achieved, particularly in imprisonment rates of Aboriginal people in this country, until 2093. I'll be dead. We'll be dead. So, you know, what, what have we got to look forward to if we've got a government that says, oh, we'll, <clears throat> we'll reach parity in 2093? A government uh, who will not implement the full recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Uh, and then, you know, we look at uh, Victorian um, government where imprisonment rate, particularly of our women in Victoria, mm. has gone up 174% in from two, 2010 to 2020. Uh, and then we have more than half of our women in prison uh, who have not even been sentenced for a crime. So that means, you know, a majority of those women, if they've got babies, they've had their babies taken away from them, they've been put in a maximum security prison and they have not even been sentenced. Yeah, it is just, it's just appalling. We've had um, conversations before with uh, the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, but also with Human Rights Law Centre about um, the bail laws that are pretty draconian in Victoria and the number of uh, Aboriginal women in particular that are on remand in Victoria. So this is a really serious issue. That's right. And so we can talk about close the gap, we can talk about treaty, but if we've got um, leaders who aren't genuine about that approach and and how to get there quicker, then we'll never get there. Uh, treaty is a way forward for this country to mature as a nation. It's a way that we can address those injustices of in- inequality uh, and we can address the past wrongs that have, um, you know, that the colonisers have committed against us. Those things we need to address because what we are experiencing in this country right now are the symptoms of that invasion, are the symptoms of colonisation, the symptoms of invasion. And so we need to address those symptoms through a truth-telling process and a treaty that that brings peace. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, something that does kind of come up from critiques of uh, a treaty process, whether this is in the right-wing kind of media um, lens or, you know, from people that are not quite aware of what this would entail, can you maybe speak to a bit of what treaty means in terms of recognising political sovereignty of First Nations people? Well, a treaty is a an agreement from between two sovereigns, between two parties. And in this case, it's between two sovereigns, the real sovereign 
and the ones who say that uh, they are sovereign and who've, who say that they've acquired sovereignty when they put their, their flag into our soil. So it's a negotiation about... Uh, and this is, look, this is up to the people. I'm not, I don't have all the answers. Treaty's got to come from the people. It's got to come from the grassroots. It's got to come from clans and nations on country about what is going to work for them. But to me, it's about shared sovereignty and it's about what that looks like. What does shared sovereignty look like? Because if it doesn't include 3% of the GDP in this country, which is trillions of dollars, where we don't have to rely on welfare, where we can self-determine our own destiny and economically empower ourselves through some of this stolen wealth that they've created here in this country, then, you know, it, it, it's not about... Uh, it's got to be that high level. It's got to have land. It's got to have uh, negotiations around coal-fired power stations on my country and Gunai country. We don't want it mm. there. Get rid of it. Um, so it's going to depend on different mobs about what they want for their country. But I can guarantee you all right now, a lot of those asks will be about protecting country and protecting our people, which includes our whole community, black and white. And it's really important for white fellows out there to get involved and learn about treaty and how you can become involved in this process because it is about, ultimately, it's about peace and it's about uh, rewriting the racist constitution. It's about having a blank canvas that we can, that we can create together and at the end of it celebrate together and, and bridge the divide that this country has and mm get rid of the racism. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you're speaking to, you know, it, it is hard to capture in one single definition because it does really rely on uh, that ground level consultation and communication and listening to Aboriginal nations around the country. Um, so on one of the points that you made around those coal fire um, stations, I think it's, it's important to touch on the fact that the Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change... Uh, which just is interesting that that's included in the name. Lily D'Ambrosio has given her consent for fossil fuel expansion near the 12 Apostles, even though we've seen the recent IPCC report, which is urging policymakers to take you know, immediate action on climate change. Um, so I was wondering if you could speak to that. All I can say is Arnie Lily's going to have the biggest fight she's ever seen on her hands. That is my country. That is Teray, Wurrung, Country, Gunditjmara, and we are preparing for the fight. And if anyone wants to stand with us and help us to protect our land once again from a Labor government, who thinks, who says that they're our friends, who wants to sit around a table and let's discuss the treaty while we absolutely destroy and desecrate your country, we'll log this. We'll log the Central Highlands and put your totems at risk of extinction. And then we'll go over to uh, the Twelve Apostles, which is incredibly spiritually important for Karei Wurrung people. Um, and we'll destroy that some more, not to mention everything else, AGL, gas, 
um, Western Port and so on and so on. Uh, the only way we're going to get this dodgy Labor government to listen to us is to protest and to uh, write them letters and to hound them like they've never been hounded before because they have no consent to destroy our country. Mm. No consent. Yeah, and I think um, on that, I think it's also really important to, to remember back to early in 2020 where there were a lot of platitudes from various governments around the need to, uh, you know, all of a sudden attend to First Nations care for country and knowledge for, you know, caring and uh, caring for the land. Um, but then when it comes back to the extractive industries, that's all forgotten. Um, so before we wrap can up, I just, oh, go, sorry, go can ahead. I just add, it's also manufacturing consent through their cultural heritage legislation. Mm. And it's, you know, they, they pick off blackfellas to uh, agree with them and that, and they leave the, the most disgusting mess behind them where a whole community is devastated and fighting one another because of the government intervention from the absolute beginning that picks us off against each other, and uh, that's got to stop also. Mm. Yeah, no, thank you for raising this. And um, before we wrap up, can you just tell listeners a little bit about uh, the Truth-Telling and Treaty Circle, which is on 19th of August on Zoom at 7 p.m., and where people can tune in? Oh, look, it's an incredible uh, opportunity for people to have a listen and to finally stop listening to me about treaty and listen to some other people, particularly some experts that have been working in this space all their lives. So we've got Uncle Michael Mansell and we've got Uncle Michael Anderson, who's um, who have both been on this journey for a long time. Mm. But we also have the amazing Celeste Little, uh, mm-hmm. who's the candidate for Cooper, who's going to give Jed Carney a very good run for her money. And then we have Dorinda Cox, who is the senator-elect for Western Australia, who's a deadly black woman and who will be joining me in the Senate uh, in September. So incredible lineup. Uh, I'll be asking the hard questions around treaty. So it's an opportunity for you to ask some of those hard questions around treaty, and I encourage you all to come along and um, sign up. Yeah, wonderful. And you can find uh, information for how to sign up on uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe's social media. There'll be links, um, so you can find uh, you can find you on um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I know. Um, but yeah, is there anything else that you wanted to to plug before we wrap? Yeah, I'd really encourage everybody to do their homework and sign up to a treaty. It's how, you know, we've got, we're dealing with so much with COVID. Um, people are starting to learn to look after one another. Uh, not entirely, but, you know, a treaty can, um, a treaty is about that too. It's about not leaving anyone behind. Mm-hmm. And this country we know has the, the rich and the poor. We've got public housing crises. We've got too many crises around this country. A treaty is an opportunity to set this country in in good stead to ensure that no one is left behind. Yeah, that's a perfect, perfect way to encapsulate it. And thank you so much, Senator Thorpe, for taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. Thank you.
And that was a conversation with Senator Lydia Thorpe, who's a Jaburong, Ghanai, and Gunachamara woman, and the Green Senator for Victoria, who joined us to speak about the importance of treaty and a truth-telling and treaty circle event, and also linking that concern into issues around incarceration and climate change. Thanks to Priya and Senator Lydia Thorpe there. Well, that's all we have time for here at 3CR Breakfast today, Monday. Um, Thank you for listening, and please stay tuned for Tuesday Breakfast tomorrow at 7. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.